The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's take our Bibles and turn them to Isaiah 14 this evening, please. Some of these books of the Bible are so long that to read them one chapter at a time or even two on Sundays is still going to take a long while to get through them. But we're going to soldier on, plow ahead, to use two different metaphors there. Isaiah chapter 14. And I think after we read, then the young people will be dismissed. Is that right for truth trackers? Okay. All right, chapter 14. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. It shall come to pass in the day that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted, and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. Now, all of that is, seems to be quite clearly against the king of Babylon and the, maybe the kingly line of Babylon, especially Nebuchadnezzar down through his grandson. Um, but um, we're going to move into a different little section here. Uh, quite interesting, isn't it, that you have this kind of almost a taunt from the residents of Sheol that are saying, oh, you one of the great kings of the earth are brought down here now, huh? You're just like one of us. It doesn't really matter how great you are, how boastful you are, how if you're, if you're an unbeliever, you're going to go to that place as well and it's not going to be, you're not going to have any fame or fortune down there. Now, we come to a section of language that is somewhat debated but seems has always seemed to me to be uh, hyperbolic in a way uh, beyond what could be spoken about the king of Babylon. And uh, watch this in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Just pause again. Notice, 
This kind of, as I call it, hyperbolic or exaggerated language in reference to the king of Babylon uh, seems to me to indeed refer to Lucifer and his fall. But any earthly king that is haughty like he kind of follows a similar pattern. You know what I mean? Maybe rise to power and maybe fall then because of that haughtiness, that arrogance. And he says in 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and then this, I will be like the Most High. You can almost say more arrogant words have never been spoken, have never been considered or suggested. And yet, still there are some people, human beings today, who suggest that I, they say, will be like God. Or I will be my own God. Or I will become a God in my own universe. Or something like that. It's, uh, it's very haughty, very arrogant, and very ungodly. Verse 15, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, all of them, sleep in glory. Everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I, as I have purposed, so it shall stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains, tread him underfoot, then his yoke shall be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? This is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will, be down, will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine, and it will slay your remnant. Wail, O gate! Cry, O city! All you of Philistia are dissolved. For smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in his appointed times. What will they answer the messengers of the nation? That the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. Amen. Trust God will bless his word there. Sometimes hard to find a 
direct application to us from some of these Old Testament passages, but certainly we can understand the idea that God requires sin at the hand of the sinner. Uh, They will be punished for what they have done ill against God and His people. By and by, maybe not necessarily uh, quickly. All right, we'll invite the young ones to uh, go out. And we need to turn our Bibles to Matthew. Matthew and Isaiah are kind of close friends. Uh, I speak um, in a way ignoring the timeline because they were separated by a great distance of time, seven centuries, yet uh, they uh, find a lot of affinity for each other in the writing of the book. And uh, Matthew, in fact, uses a number of prophecies from Isaiah and elsewhere in his writing. And so we saw that in chapter 1 in Matthew as we continue our expositional study in the book, uh, we're in the kind of Christmas uh, narrative, if you will allow me to call it that, even though we're uh, several weeks here beyond uh, Christmas Day, but still uh, some material of great interest here for us. So uh, we saw the genealogy in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and we looked at the righteousness of Joseph, the man that God selected to be the provider and protector for his son and uh, his uh, son's mother, and uh, how they were told uh, the son would uh, come and would save his people from their sins, that his name would be called Jesus. Uh, we saw the prophecy, in fact, from Isaiah chapter 7 about the virgin being with child and bearing a son, and we tried to give a little explanation of how that prophecy worked in the circumstances of King Ahaz and of of Isaiah in their day when the birth was not to occur for a number of centuries after the giving of the prophecy, the sign, really the sign from heaven. So we looked at all of that. We kind of ended at verse 24 last time and I just had titled this after the message from the angel and the fulfillment of prophecy I titled this little section here, verses 24 and 25, and so it came to pass. All that Joseph had been told unfolded and uh, he executed exactly and faithfully what God told him to do. It says in verse 24 that then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, chapter 1, verse 24, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, what is a a man like Joseph to do in a case like this? Well, it says Joseph was a just man, and that drove his actions that as he thought in his heart about what to do with this young woman that was called his fiancée, his betrothed, and so we know he was a just man. I want you to kind of put in your mind... You have a, a little box in your mind for, for good examples in the Bible. Um, Job was a righteous man. Daniel, a righteous man. Put Joseph, this Joseph in that box in your mind. And, and, and put, put Joseph, by the way, from the Old Testament in, in that box as well. So you've got two Josephs in that righteous man box. Not perfect, of course, but these are great examples for us. Um, they're... they're you know, certainly you wouldn't think of Joseph kind of in the same box as you would think of, say, Isaiah and Jeremiah. He's not a prophet. He's not a prominent man in the sense of, you know, having written large volumes of Scripture or something like that. 
but uh, he is a righteous man. Another guy you could put in your, your good man box would be Barnabas. The Bible says he was a good man and full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Uh, so there are a number of them uh, there. And uh, you can think of some others, I'm sure. But Joseph goes there. And so what does a just man do when God tells him to do something? He goes about and does it now, doesn't he? And so Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So it is with us. If we're just, if we're righteous, we will do what the Lord commands us to do. And that's exactly Joseph's pattern of behavior. He knew his dream was a word from the Lord, something that is very rare. But nonetheless, Joseph knew by the combination of circumstances, by the voice of the angel, by the message that he received, uh, and, you know, don't think for a minute that uh, Joseph and Mary were not communicating with each other. Joseph knew Mary had this angel visitation and now Mary was going to know very shortly that Joseph had this visitation from the angel. It wasn't like they were not on speaking terms, I'm sure. I mean, Joseph was a just man, right? So he he didn't ghost his... (laughs) You know what ghosting is, right? He didn't ghost his wife. He, what ghosting is is uh, if you if you're in a kind of a friendship or somebody with somebody online, uh, you don't respond to anything they send you. No emails, no texts, no WhatsApp, no Facebook messages. You just disappear. Unfriend them from Facebook. You're just gone. Um, and that happens. That's called ghosting. But what it is is rude, right? In the old days, it would be called the silent treatment. And as I've told people before. The silent treatment is like for kindergartners. You remember, you know that? I mean, I'm not going to talk to you ever again. You know, ten minutes later you're talking to them, but uh, maybe it'll last for a few days. But anyway, uh, yeah. So he wasn't in that kind of mode with with Mary. So they were probably and certainly exchanged information, and you know, he knew that she had this vision and or this visitation, and she knew that of him, and and all of that. So he was certain that what he was hearing was real. God made it real to him. It wasn't just like a dream that he got because he had, you know, uh, you know, indigestion or something like that. This was a real revelation from God. Very rare indeed, but uh, it was. So he took Mary to himself and began to live together with her and provide for her, but did not consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. Now, he had an active role to play in the fulfillment of prophecy. Because the prophecy said a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so he knew that his job was to not have relations with her until after the child was born. He did this to ensure the integrity of the prophecy about the virgin bearing a son. And this is kind of interesting. It happens in situations like this surrounding the New Testament. Um, If you think with me of another example of that sort of thing, Jesus uh, was baptized to fulfill all righteousness uh, the Bible says, um, you know, to fulfill Scripture, wasn't it when He was on the cross? He said, I thirst. You remember that passage of Scripture? He was actively involved knowing that the Scripture had to be fulfilled and so He said that in order to move the, the fulfillment of that Scripture along. That's kind of a strange thing, isn't it, in a sense? If you think it's a self-awareness of of that person's role in the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus was self-aware of his role in fulfilling the scriptural promises and prophecies. Joseph here, in a smaller way, was aware that he had to do something in order to 
fulfill the Scripture's prophecies. There were other people who did things that fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture, but they didn't know it. So like, um, for example, think of some of the Old Testament accounts of, of Scripture uh, where a king came and did something and he had been prophesied before like Cyrus. Prophesied before that he was going to do that, but he did it just out of the natural course of events as he thought them up in his mind, so he thought. Um, or think of the disciples when they went into the village to get a little donkey's colt for the Lord to ride upon. And they realized afterwards, we were involved in the fulfillment of Scripture, Zechariah, that into Jerusalem the, the Messiah would ride on a donkey's colt proclaiming salvation. And they didn't know it ahead of time. So, but Joseph had the active role here in participating. Furthermore, he obeyed God in naming the child uh, by assigning the name Jesus at the end of verse number 25. And jo- Joseph knew that his son would be the new Joshua. That's what Jesus' name is in, in Hebrew, Joshua, Yahashua, Jesus, uh, or Jehovah saves. Uh, and this one would lead the people to salvation. Now, we're done with the chapter 1, and, and I'm not going to stop, so uh, don't think you're off the hook here. I've got a whole bunch more stuff. But let me give some concluding thoughts on this section of Scripture. We said Joseph was a just man. Mary was a pure girl. Both of them were pure, if I can use that word for them. This is the place to start if you want to be used by God. You want to be used by God? Be a just man and a pure young woman. A pure man and a just young woman. Reverse the, the, the adjectives, okay? That's where you are. Be obedient to God and be righteous in your life and God will use you. Okay? So be concerned about those things that are in your, say, control, if you will, and obey God. Notice uh, the immediate uh, adoption of, this is another topic altogether, the immediate adoption of Jesus by Joseph. An adopted son is just as much a son as a biological son. Now, isn't that true? That's a blessing. And so, Joseph proceeded to care for and protect his son. Notice that uh, Joseph did not go through with the separation because of the angelic announcement. He was thinking about divorcing his betrothed wife. That was what was required to be a divorce after the betrothal period was uh, was uh, started. You know, it got underway. Um, for one thing, Joseph knew and it was troubled because he knew God doesn't like divorce. But even in exceptional cases. Uh, you know, divorce is not required by God, and uh, even in difficult circumstances, forgiveness can be extended, and and things can work out just uh, okay. Not without their struggles, to be sure. Not without their struggles. Also, I just took from this that God wanted His Son to have a godly human father and a functional family. If anyone had a valid reason for divorce, it was Joseph, at least until he found out what really happened. But instead, there would be a man in the house to guide and protect the family through the harrowing experiences that would come soon with Herod out to get the child, to travel to Egypt and back to Israel. A new mom and a new baby 
need a man to take the load off of their shoulders, to provide for them and to protect them. That's what God has designed the family to do. You know, think of the poor young mom, exhausted to begin with at the end of the pregnancy, then going through labor, then having the baby and all the demands of that. That will wear most people out to a great extent. And so the man is responsible and and all the pressure here to bear upon them is just tremendous. That your son is being hunted to be killed. What an awful feeling. Now, I want you to note too that the virgin conception and birth is a fundamental of the Christian faith. We've we, have, that is our stripe of Christians, have always held that. If you knowingly reject the virgin birth, you are showing, I'll say it this way, you are showing that you're not a genuine Christian believer. You're simply showing bad fruit and very bad fruit at that. Clearly, Scripture here teaches the virgin conception and birth notwithstanding all of the whining, and I'll call it that, and complaining of people that say, that can't happen. Of course it can't happen. That's why this is a miracle. So it's, it's a frustration when people claim to be Christians and then say, nope, there's no supernatural. Everything's natural. It's all evolution. It's you know, no bodily resurrection of Christ, no virgin birth of Christ. Please, my friends, we either believe the Bible or just just chuck the whole thing. Don't even pretend. You know, don't 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 patronize. Don't don't treat us like we're dummies. Uh, you're either going to be in the church or you're not going to be in the church. I guess I guess maybe you're feeling you're seeing how I really feel about things. But you know, it's it's just the way that it is. Other fundamentals too. There there are people who denied other fundamentals like the the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Uh, yeah, you know, they say there's errors in the Bible. Oh my. So what kind of book is this? They deny the deity of Christ, some the substitutionary atonement. All the atonement, it's just an example of God's hatred for sin. Or it's an example of heroic self-sacrifice. Like, you know, pin the medal of honor on Jesus. He's a special guy. And we should be like Him. No, not at all. Uh, the substitutionary atonement is the truth of Scripture. Um, you know, some deny the one way of salvation by grace through faith, apart from works, and a, and, and a second coming of Christ. You know, I just pause and and uh, comment on that whole incident that happened at uh, in the prayer. What was that in the prayer in Congress that this fellow offered the prayer and and, and prayed uh, Amen and a woman. I mean, that was that was just uh, sad. Um, really, in a sense, embarrassing level of ignorance. Embarrassing level of ignorance. But what most people missed is they missed what he said just before the amen. Who did this fellow pray to? Do you remember? Did you hear this prayer, brother? Any of you guys? Yeah, he, this, 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 this uh, United Methodist, was it pastor or something? Praying in Congress, he prayed in the name of Brahma, and and all the other God and all the na- other names of God that people come to God through. I don't have the quote down exactly, but I said, you know, forget a man and a woman. That's just a distraction. 
This guy prayed a pagan prayer in the United States Congress. Pagan prayer. And somebody, I, I mentioned this to somebody, and they're like, whoa, I didn't notice. You know? Because everybody was focused on the, on the gender thing with a man and a woman. But by the way, I said on that, you know, it's either a men and a women or it's a man and a woman. Didn't even have the plurality right or the, the, the number. But anyway, I'm just joking with you, okay? Uh, that was a sad testimony of the depth to which our nation has fallen. And pointing to this, this point here that I just read in my notes, there's one way of salvation. There's one God. There's not a bunch of gods. There's not a bunch of different ways to God. There is one, one God. And to say otherwise, really just to say that religion is just a man-made construct. Yes, sir? I'm just curious. Where did Brahma come from? Brahma is an Indian God. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I mean, not exactly the same as Buddha, but, you know, yes. Yeah. So, this is a very strange situation. But this is where our society is, okay? We're so far gone that people don't even recognize a pagan prayer when they hear one. The Spirit of God simply does not lead His people into that kind of error. So... We'll leave it at that. I've probably gotten myself in all kinds of trouble by saying all of that. No, you're okay with it? You think you think YouTube will be okay with it? That's that's debatable maybe. (laughs) Well, we still do have freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, and freedom of speech here. We're going to use those. Not not with a, a hateful mindset too, by the way. Just to think about it. It's a sad thing when people pray to imaginary deities, to demons, and their, their lostness is dreadful. Dreadful. Well, anyway, let's turn to Matthew 2, turn our attention there. And we'll start in verses 1 through 3. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Okay, there's a trigger phrase right there. Okay, That really triggered Herod. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why would all Jerusalem with him be troubled? Well, if there's another king, then there's going to be a civil war probably or something. And Herod is not going to be happy, obviously, because he wants no no threats. Well, Herod was the great Herod the Great was the king from 37 BC until 4 BC when he died. He was a great builder. He built the great temple facilities in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, as it's called. Now Jesus was himself born around 6 BC or so. So when you think of the the BC AD division, we didn't get it quite exactly right. Okay, it just the way that, that things fell out. Uh, Jesus was born sometime before the death of Herod, obviously based on this narrative. 
And so he must have been born around 6 B.C. or so. If we did a detailed study of Luke's Gospel, we would see about the census when Quirinius was governing Syria and we'd figure out that that was sometime started around 8 B.C. or something like that and extended on for quite some time. And that's what brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Jesus was born, and then it says, look in verse 1 of chapter 2, now after he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So these events did not occur the day after his birth. I mean, they could have with the word after, but Joseph and Mary probably settled down for a few months into Bethlehem to get their feet under them with a new baby. I mean, how would you like it? Ladies, if you just have a new baby and, and husband says, you know, the next day, okay, 90 miles on the donkey, here we go, or walking, you know, which, which way do you want to go? No, they're going to maybe settle in for a little bit and get their feet, you know, under, under them and get the new baby healthy and all. Traveling a long distance was not likely high on mom's priority list at the moments after the birth. And so this gave a group of wise men from the east time to find Jesus in the city of his birth. Now, it doesn't tell us, does it, the number of the wise men, but I know you're probably thinking, oh, it's got to be three. Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? <laughs> no, it's, it's not, certainly not here. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We usually deduce three because of the number of the gifts that they brought, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But how do we know that two of them didn't bring gold and two frankincense and two myrrh or something like that? They are identified as the Magi or Magoi, M-A-G-O-I, which is not kings, but rather magicians or astrologers. They were the religionists of the East. And likely, not 100% certainly, but likely we could connect them with the magicians or the astrologers of the book of Daniel. Look with me at Daniel chapter 1 and verse number 20. There was a long tradition of these magi types in the Babylonian empire and continuing on after that. In Matthew or sorry Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 verse 20 it says of Daniel after their training, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Some of these magicians and astrologers would have probably been in their office because of merely nepotism, merely um, a family connection or, or uh, lineage. But obviously Daniel and his friends were selected purely because of what? Merit. They were purely selected on the basis of merit. They were smart. They were able to learn the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the culture, the practices. They were young. They were sharp uh, people. But uh, they were better than all these magicians and astrologers. That's really where I was going with this verse before I get sidetracked into Daniel's life, one of my favorite characters in Scripture. Um, also with chapter 2, verse 2, the king gave the command to call the magicians, this is Daniel 2.2, 2, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. So these are people who uh, look to the sky. They see what they think are signs in the stars. 
and they make a big connection with them. They have some kind of prophecies. Perhaps they knew of the Hebrew Scriptures because of the influence of Daniel in that place. Daniel chapter 5 and verse number 11 the scripture says, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found, were found in him. King, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. The thing about Daniel was he really could know what a dream was without being told because God gave him that insight. And also he could interpret the dream, something that these magicians and astrologers could not do on their own. So he had a a very uh, place of high esteem and probably became legendary in that place. And they would say, do you remember Daniel the Jew who had all this insight into divine revelation and wisdom and knowledge? And so perhaps they knew of him these centuries even later, perhaps he had come to a legendary status there, if that were possible, if there was not a lot of uh, kind of anti-Semitism there and latent in that system. I don't, I don't know about that. But um, So these were originated from a group of pagan religionists who had some connection to the God of the Hebrews and they had some insight, some insight now lost to us about a star pointing out the place of the birth of Israel's king. Now, there might be some places you could go in Genesis, like around 49 and maybe a couple other spots that you might be able to pick up some like little illusion or something you might think is this reference, but I'm not sure that that's really necessary or wise even to do. It says these were dwellers in the east, probably Babylon or Susa or nearby. They could have been Persian Perhaps they were Zoroastrian priests. Zoroastrian religion is a very ancient religion. You might look that up sometime. I I had studied that some years ago because there was a fellow that I worked nearby to in the Ph.D. program at Michigan who had come from that background, a Zoroastrianism. And I didn't know anything about it at the time. So And now, this has been 20 years, more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago, so now I've forgotten some of the details, but or most of them. But we just don't know enough to pin down their exact identification here. They saw the star, they said, and they traveled west to follow the star. So they were in the east. They saw the star in the west from the east. They went west to follow the star. And logically, they came to Jerusalem since that's the capital city of Israel. I mean, where would you think the king would be born anyway? Probably in the capital city. They might have expected to come to see great fanfare and celebration already underway when they arrived. And why shouldn't they have? A new king was born. Think of when a new baby is born and heir to the throne in Great Britain today. Oh, the royal watchers are just all a Twitter about it. You know, it's just a great deal. And so it should have been for Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Only much more important because... This birth was predicted centuries earlier of a worldwide king. But there was no fanfare. Where is this king? These magi would ask, naturally. And here's the sad note. 
given their religion, they were more up to speed on the arrival of Messiah than the Jews themselves. What does that say? Actually, so it is today with many, many Gentiles knowing about the first coming of of the Messiah more clearly or just knowing about it at all than the Jewish people themselves. What a sad testimony. He came to his own. You're finishing it in your mind, right? And his own did not receive him. Notice that it says, verse 2, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. And what did they come to do? And we have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. That is quite a testimony. The wise men had good intent, although off base because they probably were worshiping him in a syncretistic way, combined with all their other religious background, just adding him into their pantheon, so to speak. And this, coupled with joy at being near to the end of their journey, was the proper reaction to the the baby king. People should have bowed down to worship him. Herod should have bowed down to worship him. Herod should have protected him. He should have put him up in 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 a nice room in the palace and provided for him. But obviously he didn't. Now, it said they saw the star. What is this star? You know, was it uh, Jupiter and Saturn lined up like they were here recently? Last time that happened, by the way, I think it was in the year 1226. That is a long time ago. I hope you saw at least some pictures of that correspondence of the two, uh, the two uh, planets. It was quite fascinating. I saw one fellow had taken a picture where there were the two dots next to each other. And you could see the rings around Saturn just on his telephoto lens on his camera. It was crazy. Um, But the timing and movement of this star seemed to prohibit this particular conclusion. It seems to have been a supernatural indicator. That's what I'm thinking uh, from my understanding of it. Perhaps some kind of angelic appearance. Perhaps like the Shekinah glory that had left Israel so many centuries earlier. And did it ever come back? Those who sat in darkness saw a great light. The land of Naphtali, Zebulun, Galilee of the Gentiles, the Bible says. Those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Yeah, the Shekinah glory in effect came back with Jesus. It, did, it, uh, it, it had left in 580-something, 87, I can't remember now, the year uh, from... Uh, in Ezekiel, as the, you see the movement of the glory of God away from the temple and never had returned until a minister came suddenly and proclaimed the coming of a king and then the Messiah suddenly showed up at his temple. But uh, the star, maybe that Shekinah glory. In the end, I can't say with dogmatic certainty. I'm, I don't think it's important for us to be able to do that. But there was another reaction to the arrival or or assumed arrival of this king. These men came with joy and they came to worship him. But Herod was troubled. And the background music turns very dark now as he begins to connive as to how he's going to handle this 
usurper to his throne, he thinks. By the way, no throne is a man's throne. Every power that exists has been ordained by God. And not a one of them has come to their power without the ordination of God. Well now, this announcement is a threat to the family of Herod, his dynasty. Herod would soon die. We know that. He didn't know that, but we knew that from world history that within a couple of years he was gone. And his domain would be split into several smaller realms. And of course, Rome was the hegemon over the whole area. And so they would permit or not permit different ones to rule different areas. But he did not want an outsider taking over his kingdom. He wanted power. And why does one want power so badly anyway? Our fallen condition damages any benevolent pursuit of power so that it's most often dangerous and selfish. Sometimes it is that people want to use power to help society. But even that is often self-centered. Instead of being a civil service thing, it becomes a self-service thing. As we see even now in the enrichment of our, of our representatives in Washington, the vast amounts of wealth that surround the District of Columbia is unreal. Uh, some like six of the ten richest counties in the United States surround that area. It is a really sad situation. And the, the people there have fancied themselves to be rulers instead of civil servants. The benevolent dictator feels good about helping poor souls who cannot help themselves. He has better ideas than they do. He has more wisdom. He knows what to do. He has more power, more foresight. And The unbenevolent dictator has all of that, perhaps he thinks, but he just, he just doesn't care. The power, the money, the pleasure, and all that comes with them is inebriating to them. It's like a drug. And they want more of it. And anybody who threatens them, they will remove. Like Herod wants to remove Jesus. And he doesn't care about the collateral damage that occurs. So he goes about finding out a little bit more about this. Chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Okay, so they, this is the astonishing thing. They knew. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now you would think that they would have a... Um, you know, a monitor on Bethlehem. When is this special child born? Because they knew that that child would deliver them from their sins and deliver them from oppression and deliver them into the kingdom of God, but they ignored the signs. Herod gathered the priests and scribes together, asked where the child would be born, uh, but he obviously asked with ill intent. The Jewish leaders did not did know the answer to Herod's question, but they did not know that Jesus was the one. That's interesting. They were up to speed enough to connect the dots that the king of the Jews was the Christ and that the prophet in Micah 5 verse 2 had been told that there would be born in Bethlehem a child who was king. Let me go back there and find uh, Micah. This before Nahum in Micah chapter 5. It says, 
in verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, this is Micah 5, 2, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Wow, that's a twist on things, isn't it? Here's somebody that's going to come, but his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This is, this is exalted language. This is not David. Now, Micah, you wouldn't know this right off, but he wrote between 750 and 686 B.C., so a long time ago, a long time before the events of Matthew's Gospel were occurring. But a long time, several centuries after, or two and a half centuries at least, after David the king. He was not speaking of David. He was speaking of another that would be that would arise from Bethlehem, the home of the ancient kings of Israel. And this one would be the ruler whose goings forth are of old from everlasting. That is very a very big story, uh, perhaps too often overlooked. So, this was... <clears throat> Not only common knowledge, though, among the Pharisees, they knew their Bible, at least in a kind of memorized way, and uh, and some of them, I'm sure, in a godly way, but many of them not. But the other thing is that the people of Israel knew this. Let's go to John chapter 7. So it's not just the religious leaders But three decades later, we see evidence that there was common knowledge amongst the people of Israel that this was to be the case, this Bethlehem connection. In Matthew chapter, or sorry, John chapter 7, John and chapter 7, go to verse 41. Jesus has just given a promise about the Holy Spirit at the feast that that he was at. And it says after that in verse 40, John 7:40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard the saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? So they knew Jesus came out of Galilee from Nazareth. And then look at verse 42. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. So there was a controversy because some said, well, this guy's from Galilee. He can't be the prophet. But but he's supposed to be from, from Bethlehem. I wonder if somebody ever asked Jesus, where were you born? Have you ever been asked that question? (laughs) I've been asked that question, and I can tell you, although I wasn't conscious of it at the time, I've uh, heard my mom say it enough that I was born in Ann Arbor, although I grew up in Chelsea, and so somebody could say, what, this guy's, you know, coming out of Chelsea? What's up with that? He's, he's supposed to be, you know, he's in an Ann Arbor church. He should come from Ann Arbor. Well, I guess I sort of did technically. 
I was born in what was then, uh, back when I worked there, again, when I was in my 20s, called the North Ingalls Building, which was the old St. Joe Hospital. Remember that place, brother? That's where I was uh, brought into the world. But uh, Jesus could have simply been asked, where were you born? And if only people would listen. I mean, he wasn't going to lie to them, right? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Ooh, Micah 5.2. Are you the one that's coming? Uh, they would find out if they really sought and, and were earnest about it. But they missed the obvious possibility that he was born in Bethlehem and moved to another place for his early and coming up years. Maybe they had an assumption like, if you're born in a city, you're probably going to stay there for most of your life. Most people would do that, although I'm sure there was movement, humans being such as they are. I can't imagine there were no people that you know, were nomadic or had wanderlust back in those days, human nature being the same as it is today. Sometimes people just have to have to get up and move and try different things out. But maybe most people stayed near their home and that was their assumption. But be that as it may, uh, the common people knew it was Bethlehem. The religious leaders knew it was Bethlehem. Herod didn't know it was Bethlehem until he asked. Kind of like you know, other some leaders are just kind of ignorant of spiritual things. You know, you wish they knew their Bible a little bit better. But um, anyway, so remember, Micah was written centuries before the events of Jesus' birth. The events surrounding his birth, the life, the miracles, his death, resurrection, all the rest would be so impossible to force that the easiest, that is to force them happening in, a, in the correct sequential order, that the easiest and most logical explanation to the person of Jesus and how he connects to the, the prophecies of the Christ in the Old Testament is to do what the apostles did. Remember what they did? They preached Christ from the Old Testament and then they reviewed the history of Jesus and they said, see the parallels between these two? This Jesus is the Christ. They make that connection and they preach the gospel of grace, the saving grace of God in Christ. And so that's really the only logical explanation based on what we can see in the text of Scripture. All right, let's, uh, let's take quickly a little bit more from the next section. Chapter, Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Seeking and worshiping the newborn king is our subsection title here. Seeking and worshiping the newborn king, the third section in Matthew 2. It says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Okay, he gets what? Four Pinocchios on that one? What a terrible lie. So when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Notice, underscore that, him, not her, him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So Herod inquired about the time of the star. This was going to tell him about the time of the birth and foreshadows what he would do in chapter 2, verse 16 with the massacre of the innocents by ordering all the boys under two years old to be murdered. 
Probably a star had appeared about a year before the time or around the time of Jesus' birth, and Herod was making sure by going back two years and forward to the present, Herod was troubled. That is problem number one that shows his sin. His fallen condition also had him plotting. Not only was he troubled, but he plotted in that trouble, and that was the expression number two of his sinfulness. So Herod told them to search the young child and bring back word. I'm not sure why he didn't send a representative with the Magi, but God restrained him from doing so. Uh, you know, it would seem like if you're that concerned, you'd send along a representative, a soldier or something, and go find this child and bring back uh, the, the address, as it were. But he trusted them enough because of their earnestness, or he thought they might be a little bit crazy in their religious speculations. And so he, uh, you know, maybe thought it was unlikely they would find anything of value to him. Um, but this doesn't seem to fit his murderous rampage through Bethlehem. I did find this little note that uh, in the study that scholars agree that Herod suffered throughout his lifetime from depression and paranoia. He suffered depression and paranoia. Well, this would certainly be an evidence that that was the case. Why are you going to worry about a newborn baby? Just relax, man. Take it easy. Everything's going to be fine. Herod had no compunction about lying about his purpose. He said, that I may worship him also. What a sad lie. Sinful expression number three. Like many people today, including leaders, politicians, and so on, lying seems more common than truth-telling. How many have you heard times somebody has a public position and then they have their real position? Now, Look, I'll just go back to my Chelsea. I'm just a, a guy from a farm in Chelsea. Grew up a simple life. You know what we used to call that? Lying. You know, you have two faces about something. How can you, how can you have that with a good conscience? Just come out with it. Just say what you believe. Oh, but we can't say that we believe in you know, socialism because then we wouldn't get enough votes. Lying. So common. As long as it's in the service of power, any means necessary works for these people. Whether it's politics and government or politics and corporations or, or money or pleasure, adulterous affairs, that sort of thing. Lying is seen as a tool to accomplish a desired end. But this is not so for the people of God. Bearing false witness in a court and misleading people in general is wrong and should strike our conscience with guilt. Lying requires confession and repentance and amending our ways so that we stop lying. You have put off the old man. Therefore, you are to put off lying. Colossians 3.9. Ephesians chapter 4 says the same thing. So at verse number 9, the Magi depart. They leave Herod. They follow this moving star toward the south, just a short distance. If you were to be able to plop down there in Jerusalem today, you could hop in a cab and get to Bethlehem in less than a half an hour. When they saw the star ceased moving, they were very happy because now their long journey was about over. Do you know how long their journey was? Not by car, not by airplane. It could have been a thousand miles or more. 
Their, their journey was over. They'd reached their goal. This was perhaps for them the pilgrimage of a lifetime. You just didn't do this. Maybe there were patrons paying their way and fellow magi back in Persia relying on them to bring back a report. Maybe they were just representatives of a larger group and they were going to be able to go back and tell them, you will not believe what we found. Total excitement and joy of what they were finding. They saw the child. and They saw Mary. They didn't say they saw Joseph. <clears throat> he probably was out working or something. Who knows? Providing for the family. But as any guests would in a circumstance like this, they brought gifts to celebrate the birth of the child. This was their, oh, what could we say, their baby shower gifts. They gave him gold. Did you get any gold yesterday, brother? <laughs> no. Just remember, diapers are gold. <laughs> you need them. Um, fit for a king. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13. Revelation 1 and verse 13 says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about his chest with a golden band. Gold. Fit for a king. And frankincense. You know, the interesting thing about frankincense, uh, over in Exodus chapter 30, I'll read this verse for you. It says this, Exodus 30. <clears throat> Let's see, I think it's verse 34. Yes, about the incense. And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacti and anica and galbanum, and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy, and more instructions about how to make it. And they were to burn this on the altar of incense. But it says, whoever, last verse of the chapter 38, whoever makes any like it to smell like it, he shall be cut off from his people. This was to be the end. Uh, the, the, only, the only people who made this kind of mixture. And it included frankincense. So they could use frankincense, but not the mixture of the other things. And then there was myrrh. Myrrh, I'll comment upon uh, in a moment. Or later. Uh, yeah, actually in a moment. These gifts were not only kingly, but practical as provisions for the impoverished family that would soon have to flee from their lives as aliens to a foreign country. You know, international travel is not cheap. And they had to do it. They had no choice to save the life of the child. More subtly, particularly about the, the gift of myrrh, the, this gift connected Jesus' birth to his death and burial. Particularly in this case of myrrh, look with me at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. It says in verse number 23, Jesus is on, a, on the cross now, and it says, They gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. This is a pain killer. And then in John 19 and verse 39, it says this, and 
after the death of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And so Jesus' life began with myrrh as a gift and ended with myrrh at his death. What a sad thing. After the seeking of the wise men became finding, God warned them in a dream. That was a way that they understood a revelation from the heavens that they must return home another way. And so they would travel to the east once again to their homeland in Persia or wherever it was, but via a different route so as to avoid Herod. This, as we've said, the special revelation through dreams is very rare. It's even more rare to Gentiles. But in this case, it was warranted because God had to protect His Son who was enfleshed in a baby's body to protect Him from a murderous dictator. Herod sought the king with murderous intent. The Magi sought Him with worshipful intent. I wonder what your intent is with Jesus. I trust it is a good one. Not a mocking one, not a murderous one, but a worshipful one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we close our time tonight with thanksgiving that we've been able to look at the Word and to consider what happened in these early days of the life of our Lord Jesus on the earth. Father in heaven, it's our prayer that we will hold Jesus with just the highest and right kind of reverence in our hearts. That He came, God in the flesh, to save His people and the Gentiles who would believe in Him from sin. And we thank You for that. May this knowledge, even of this troublesome time in world history, when a great thing was happening, be a great encouragement to the people participating in our service tonight. For those here, for those afar off, may your blessing rest upon them as they follow you. Lord, give us a breakthrough this week in whatever it is our our challenges are, whether it's employment, whether it's a family situation, whether it's a personal struggle that we're having whether it's a fear or whatever it is. I pray for a good week this week for Your people. We've spent the first hours of our week together this way and we pray that we'll spend the rest of our week profitably for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name we ask. Amen.